Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, from the beginning of the Trump administration, there has been a desire for the, for, for the president to broaden his agenda beyond what we've been talking about now from the beginning of the Trump administration, Russia, Syria, and even a little bit of China. Africa, for the most part, does not appear to have a seat at the table. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that Africa is important to the United States. One of the misperceptions that you and I have tried to address over the years uh, that a lot of people think is that China is the number one investor in Africa. And what we see over and over again from the Ernst & Young attractiveness reports, what we've seen from McKinsey reports, is that when it comes to trade, China's number one. But when it comes to investment, the United States is still the number one investor in Africa. And that's something that a lot of people don't really understand. So it's we're going to talk today a little bit about the U.S. relationship with Africa and where China fits with that. And we're going to bifurcate between the political relationship, which seems to be struggling, and the corporate relationship, which may or may not actually be thriving. It definitely seems like on the Chinese side, it's definitely thriving. Um, you know, on the U.S. side, I think it's it, it might be a bit more of a, of a mixed picture. Um, President Obama famously tried to get U.S. companies to be more interested in Africa. And by the end of his administration, they not so many seem to have grown interested. Um, and I think one of one of the issues is perceptions of, of Africa um, in the U.S., um, but increasingly it's also turning into an issue of perceptions of the U.S. in Africa. Um, as the U.S.'s presence in, in Africa becomes increasingly militarized and, um, and in comparison with China's complicated ever-growing presence in, in Africa, it becomes an in interesting question to ask how the U.S. is viewed and, and what opportunities there are for U.S. businesses in Africa. You see, Kobus, I think you're making the mistake here. I think you're conflating the political relationship with the corporate relationship. So in the one hand, you're right, the, the militarization of American foreign policy, but that may not actually be the case on the corporate side. And we're going to actually find out about that because we have a guest who I've had wanted to have on the show for a very, very long time. Uh, and, and more recently, an article that she wrote for Newsweek uh, back on June 25th, uh, Business Advice for U.S. Companies in Africa, Do What You Do Best, is written by Aubrey, uh, Aubrey Ruby, who's a senior fellow at the Africa Center of the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. And for those of you not familiar with that, that's one of the larger think tanks inside the Beltway. She's also an investment advisor on Africa and the author of the 2015 book, the next Africa, an emerging continent becomes a global powerhouse. Uh, a very good morning to you, Aubrey, from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be on. Well, listen, you've just heard a little bit of the discussion that uh, Kobus and I have had about the U.S. relationship with Africa. Um, it's The situation in Washington right now is a little foobar. Um, it's, you know, from the outside looking in, I'm looking from Asia. Kobus is looking from Africa. The United States looks nothing short of a joke. Um, that that's that's pretty much the consensus. The politics are destructive, um, and it seems hard to believe that Africa has a seat at the table when it comes to the attention of the president, even the State Department, when it comes to foreign policy. So, give us a view. You're in in D.C. You interact with the political class there, I presume. You also um, do business, working, advising American corporations. 
Give us the, the lay of the land for where Africa stands in the United States right now, particularly at the political level. Yeah, so in D.C., I think it's important to have kind of a little bit of a historical perspective in looking at where Africa has stood historically across administrations um, as well. And I think all of us who are passionate about doing business in Africa and uh, working in African markets have been somewhat frustrated across administrations that African countries haven't played a more strategic role. Uh, there have been African foreign policy initiatives. Here I mean PEPFAR, I mean uh, President Obama's kind of Power Africa, but those are one-off, ad hoc, programmatic approaches to Africa. And we've really lacked a kind of overarching strategic framework where African issues and U.S. strategic interests in Africa get interwoven into our global strategy. It's always like, oh, you Africa people go in the corner and come up with a new program. Um, and so I expect the Trump administration to, to be no different and to have some kind of Africa flagship program um, that they want to brand that's not exactly different than other administrations of just a one-off kind of Africa program. So I think overarchingly there's a problem in Washington of not seeing how to integrate African markets into our overall global strategy. So I don't think this administration is that different when it comes to the challenge at hand. When you look at the discourse about Africa in, in within the Beltway, is it mostly still within the frame of, oh, we need to help Africa, for example, as PEPFAR did very successfully? Uh, or is there an, also a discourse of, oh, there are actually opportunities passing us by in Africa, that Africa has a potential to, there's profit potential in Africa. Is, is that something that is actually being said in the Beltway, within the Beltway now? Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. There's both. Um, because, you know, there's not one group of constituents here that have uniform in thinking, right? You have multiple groups that have different approaches. And listen, you know, as someone who's worked very hard to ensure Africa is uh, on the agenda in Washington, you just have to frame it differently to different groups. You know, if you're talking to a more left audience, it's about fairness and dispersion of opportunity and economic development and those type of topics. And if it's more to the right community, it can be something like, you know, Africans are working to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but we have to have policies to make the bootstraps and reach. It's about framing and the thing about Africa is that there are, it's a big tent. There's a lot of people who can come to the table. You can have Chevron sitting next to NGOs all talking about, you know, what to do on African markets. You can have people far right, far left. But the issue is, and I'm going to use an expression coming from the west of the U.S., like it's, you know, the river's a mile wide but an inch deep. So it means everyone can sit under the tent, but when it comes to actually fighting and working for good policies, not many people will uh, spend the time, effort necessary on African policy. And I think you've really identified one of the key differences between the U.S. approach to Africa policy and the Chinese approach, whereas this, the U.S. approach seems to be this more chaotic, decentralized, disorganized where everybody gets to kind of frame the narrative according to their own ideological belief, the Chinese government has a much more centralized, unified view of it. 
Uh, now, I'm not going to pretend that the Chinese approach necessarily is perfect, or if it's that organized, it always looks more organized on the outside than it is, and it's probably much more chaotic. But at least from a branding point of view, the Chinese seem to have their stuff together, whereas the Americans have a much more kind of complex message when they're talking to Africa. And that's why it always surprised yeah. me when American secretaries of state, whether it was Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, uh, or former Undersecretary of State Johnny Carson would go to Africa and say that the United States is actually a better partner than the other guy. And they would kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, and kind of insinuate the Chinese. Uh, I'd like to get your kind of take on that, about the, the comparing the approaches between U.S. And, the, and, and China and Africa. Yeah, I mean, I think our approaches are always going to be messier. We're a large federal democracy. It's messy. It's just by messy by nature um, and design. And so, and I do think that China takes an, a more overarching strategic approach. Um, and we, you know, we still, like I said earlier, take these kind of one-off programmatic approaches that don't, um, that don't quite get at the heart of, of strategy. Um, and I do think that the, the Chinese approach, while overarchingly strategic, is far more chaotic. Um, I've worked with several Chinese companies, seen firsthand um, how much competition there is in the space. And, you know, one of the greatest myths, I think, that exists is that there's some smoky room in Beijing where, you know, the titans, the heads of former SOEs and the EPC contractors get together and, like, divide up. Uh, African markets like at some, you know, Berlin conference back in the day. And I actually find it to be hyper-competitive among uh, Chinese entities. Um, but, you know, listen, in the U.S., we really won't know the direction of Africa policy um, in the Trump administration until some of the key roles are filled. And I think we're getting closer to that, having some of the key roles filled um, you know, by that I mean Assistant Secretary for Africa at State Department, um, National Security Advisor for Africa. Um, so those those roles will be critical in determining the direction. The folks that have been uh, suggested and are in the process of being vetted for those roles, I can say, are Africanists. They know the region. Uh, they're they're talented. They're smart. Um, they will likely take a security approach to the region, but are very open to business as well. In your article, you call for um, funding for the Overseas Private Investment Corporation and the Export-Import Bank. Um, now, obviously, the, the Chinese Export-Import Bank is a major player in Africa and is, is, a, is a real driver of Chinese investment um, on the continent. What do you see, like, what are the chances that, that that kind of funding would come through, especially in, you know, in the current political climate in Washington? Uh, the chances are zero that it will be, ever play the role that China XM does. China XM creates incentives to, like, push investment into the region. Um, all we're trying to do here in Washington, myself included, is to defend the basic programs that USXM and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation can provide uh, to U.S. companies because they are critical trade finance, political risk insurance, um, but they're not actively pushing out into, you know, into the region. I don't think they'll ever have the budgets for that. Um, but they have come under attack uh, uh, congressionally over the past 
five years, and then now within the uh, Trump proposed budget, uh, there have there were significant cuts um, for both. So I would say it's more of a defensive approach. We're trying to protect the basic tools that U.S. companies can access here rather than trying to envision a U.S. XM ever acting like a China XM. So I, I guess I'm curious to hear a little bit about the conversations that you have with African leaders, African politicians who may express to you to say, listen, the United States has been very active in Africa over decades, even a centuries. Um, but, you know, China's building the road right in front of us. China put the power plant. Huawei's building the mobile network. Um, you know, what's the U.S. doing here? And it just seems to me that the United States is becoming less relevant in the daily lives of Africans beyond pop culture. Akon goes on tour throughout Africa. Okay, fine. People love Jay-Z and Beyonce. Great. That's a soft power issue. But in, in practical terms, that the United States is reframing the world in a security framework to deploy more military forces, that's how people see the United States, not in a constructive way, like the Chinese in the sense who are building roads. And I'm just wondering, are you hearing that from, from African policymakers and influence leaders? Well, I think it's a slower shift than what you're describing. Um, you know, I think a lot of the policy makers in Africa and, you know, corporate leaders in Africa are extremely sophisticated. They've gone to Harvard. They've gone to, you know, Wharton. They've studied at Cambridge. And so they have a very global view and understand it's kind of a more nuanced uh, situation. Um, I do worry that the slow trend of uh, Chinese influence is changing that because, for example, I've been very vocal on uh, things that supported uh, African scholarships for tertiary education in the U.S. because for a very long time, the African elite policymakers were educated in the United States, and now more and more are younger people are being educated in China. And what I think that does is just create a common culture, a common thought process that, um, that is that kind of soft, uh, you know, it's a ligament to doing business. It really, really, it makes doing business easier when you share these kind of reference points. So I worry about those larger term uh, things. Um, I think a lot of African leaders are aware that the U.S. companies were just not road builders. That's kind of what my Newsweek article was arguing. Uh, U.S. companies don't go around the world building roads. Um, we don't really build rail. I mean, to just take Amtrak on the East Coast and you have a good sense that we struggle with rail. Especially this summer. Um, it's, not what we, it's not what we do best, right? And that was really my, my push. Um, but a lot of African leaders will say to me, uh, in confidence that they prefer to have American companies or Western companies bid on certain projects um, because they do still have a view that they get a higher quality product. And so often I feel that they accept the Chinese uh, offer as kind of like, well, it's the second best. I mean, we didn't have another one and we need this thing. So let's go with it. Where do you think American companies' strengths lie? Like which, which sectors should they focus on in Africa? Oh, I think it's something that's look. I mean, you can look at that question globally. You can look at how we do um, uh, understand our own GDP breakdown. Um, for me, it's things like financial services. Um, Wall Street still Wall Street, despite 2008 and the, the wreckage it put on upon the world. 
but it's still Wall Street. Venture capital is still highly, highly concentrated in the U.S. Uh, things like services around um, accounting, auditing, design, all those type of services orientation, um, heavily R&D products like ag technology. Um, there are a lot of new ag tech things coming, uh, coming out of the U.S. that I think are relevant to increasing agricultural productivity in, in African markets. Things like cybersecurity, um, even though we can't stop uh, Russian hackers from you know, getting into our <laughs> process around the election. But um, point is that I think a general category would be the services industry. We talked uh, last week, spoke last week with David Pilling, who's the Africa editor over at the Financial Times, and he was talking about Japan's difficulty in Africa and that they really are not well positioned and well equipped to work in these frontier markets, these 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 emerging markets, and their the profitability isn't enough to attract them to really bring on those skills. And it reminds me a little bit. I'm not sure if American companies are also equally unprepared to work in frontier markets like in Africa. And that might explain why you don't see the presence. You, you, you're right to point out that those are the strengths that, that our companies have. But whether they deploy those strengths to, to markets like you know Nigeria, Botswana, uh, is a second story. And I'm just wondering what your take on that, if you see any comparisons between the Japanese and the Americans in, in their approach to Africa. Sure. First, number one, let us not forget that African markets are incredibly small when it comes to global perspectives on, say, financial services. Um, They are incredibly small. $135 billion was raised last year for global private equity, and less than 1% of that will, I mean, less than 0.5, less than 0.2%. I mean, last year, uh, two, $2 billion was raised for, for, um, for African private equity. So you see that there's just this huge disconnect between, um, between uh, African markets uh, and the size of the opportunity. Even though we live it, you and, and Corbus and, and me, we focus on it all the time, but you have to think of it from a relative perspective. But I don't agree that American companies aren't uh, there. I mean, if you look at the main service providers and you look at Ernst & Young and their offices, the PwCs, I mean, they've got uh, 10,000 employees in, in South, South Africa if you add up all the different American kind of auditors, et cetera, and accounting firms. So they're there. Um, and American entities like GE and Coca-Cola have been there for a century. Um, so... I think it's about encouraging the next wave of U.S. investment into African markets that have to do with the smaller U.S. companies that have great impact and the ones that are still on the sidelines. You, the, you mentioned the issue of African leaders increasingly ha- having a background in China rather than the U.S. There was recently this very, uh, very hyped UNESCO um, report that showed that, China, that far more African students are studying in China rather than the U.S. or the U.K. How do you think this is going to impact the U.S. in the future, in the next coming few decades in, in Africa, this, this kind of lessening of that influence? I think it's huge. That's why I believe that we should reverse those uh, statistics. I mean, I just fundamentally think it's a big, big deal and one that people don't realize until 
um, those kind of plates have shifted because it just, there's something shared when you go and you meet and you try to do business or engage with someone who has the same reference points as you um, and has a shared common culture uh, as you. And I just think losing that kind of soft power of tertiary education is, is not where we want to be. And it's the cheapest form of kind of public diplomacy. And I've been on record arguing several times that efforts like, you know, what the Africa America Institute used to do that brought Obama's uh, father to the U.S. and trained many African presidents and ministers, um, you know, it it's doesn't get the finances that it once did and has to rely on kind of individual donation. Yeah, and that's not the America of today. I mean, we're looking at a proposed State Department budget cut of 32 33%. Key positions haven't been filled. There is this sense of isolationism that is creeping within the culture. Um, you know, I just, I don't see that happening. This is even irrespective of Trump. There is a shift in, in in across the American culture that is that is shifting inwards in many respects, um, and so this idea of engaging and sponsoring students to come over, uh, I I just don't see that as a budgetary priority uh, in the current climate. So therefore, I mean, are we making as Americans a mistake that will have a, a devastating impact beyond just the students, but also on soft power and aid? Uh, my favorite quote from General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, was, if you don't fund the State Department, you're going to have to buy me more bullets. And, and I yeah. just wonder if, if this is a tragic shift in policy that will, will have devastating consequences for us long term. I think it's a, a negative shift for sure. Um, I've never been a huge, huge proponent of general aid budget. Um, I'm much more private sector and targeted in how I'd like to see uh, U.S. foreign assistance. Uh, spent, but one of the areas I'd like to see it in is is more scholarships. So um, I do think it's kind of a a short short termism problem, and I don't think it's just uh, you know isolated to the United States. I mean, look what's gone on in the UK. Yeah, um, well. You know, Europe. Some European countries have narrowly uh, you know escaped kind of the more nationalist approaches, but they still have a huge constituency to deal with on that front. So. I don't think this is anything particularly uh, U.S. only. I also think in the process, one of one of the complicating issues is is American pop culture itself. The you know generally soft power people tend to think of just this popularity of of pop culture leading directly to one you know one to one directly to to soft power increases. And in the case of of America in in Africa, I don't think it's necessarily the case because U.S. So U.S. Uh, pop culture is itself so critical of certain kind of aspects of U.S. society. So a lot of my students, their their favorite American artists are Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar, who are both highly critical of certain kind of aspects of American life. And in in the process, they the the the, the discourse of being African American is different from the discourse of being of being American itself. And when I I recently asked a bunch of my students who of them would like to visit the U.S. if they just if I just handed them a, a ticket to go, and very few of them actually really wanted to. Very few were burning to go because they all said, "Oh, they're going to have problems with the police. They're going to get searched." There's, they see it as a racist country, and that is, isn't just because of kind of of hostile depictions of the U.S. It's because of the way that the U.S.'s internal d- 
dialogue with itself is also its pop culture. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, I think that's the nature of being a messy and federalist democracy with groups being able to speak freely. And these are major issues in the U.S. and, and tragic ones about um, kind of police brutality and race and all of that. And, you know, it's for the world to see. Um, and I don't, you know, I think that those who um, can experience a place see a more nuanced experience. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think there's an, a way forward or an answer on that front, um, except to say that that's a problem we struggle with. At least it's uh, kind of out in the open and we are dealing and struggling with that on the regular every day. Sure. Um, let's close out our discussion with looking forward a little bit. Uh, I, I read a little bit of some of your quotes you expressing a little bit of concern about the, the health of the Chinese economy. And we've had a number of different guests on the show who have discussed the idea that maybe the Chinese are actually losing interest in Africa. Uh, trade volumes are down this year. Uh, investment is actually down as well. I mean, it's masked by the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation $60 billion commitment. So that kind of puts this halo over the, the China-Africa relationship. But on the corporate level, uh, Chinese investors now have a lot more choice for where they put their money than they did 10 years ago when Africa was very popular. Then you talked about the rising debt levels in China uh, in, in a recent Huffington Post. You were quoted there in a Huffington Post article. So I'm curious about what your forecast is for looking in the next five to 10 years out, if you if you go that far, uh, for what the Chinese in Africa do and then what you see for the U.S. Well, again, prediction is very difficult. Rapidly growing economies like uh, the, that there are in African markets especially in East Africa right now, um, you know, they, they up and down, they change, they grow, they, you know, the rapid growth is neither linear nor smooth. So very difficult to kind of extend out. But what I see is as China becomes more normalized as a kind of pillar of global power, they also become more global in their perspective and have to make portfolio trade-offs the same way that, the U.S. does and other European players do, right? So when American companies are saying, um, are, are thinking less about investing in Africa, it's not because they're saying, oh, African markets are terrible. It's often because they're saying, oh, we're really behind in Vietnam. Let's focus on Vietnam for, for a period. And so having a global portfolio is, um, is something to always keep in mind when you're looking from a single stock. You know, in our sense, what we live and what we work and, and focus on is, is the African uh, economy and African markets in general. And that's our single stock, if you will, um, or 53 stocks, if you will. But the rest of the world can be making decisions on an entire global portfolio. So trade-offs are often made in a way that are kind of inexplicable and, and often are read into like, oh, that means African markets are terrible. No, it just means that there's other places that uh, can present easier opportunities at different times. Um, I expect the following. One, I expect Chinese companies to evolve, meaning less, uh, less EPC dominance on the continent, meaning less construction contractors. And seeing more of actual true FDI, like we see from Huawei and ZTE and Techno, actually balance sheet investments, similar to what U.S. companies do, so you can prepare, compare apples to apples. And then on the American side, I see 
slowly more American SMEs getting interested in the region. And so having a more diverse set of American investors rather than the traditional big players of like Caterpillar, GE, Coca-Cola, you know, Cargill, those type of players. We have a greater set that bring new technologies to the table. So I think it's a, it's a macro picture of greater diversification and uh, more complexity. Aubrey Ruby is a senior fellow at the Africa Center of the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C., and also an investment advisor and the author of the 2015 book, The Next Africa, An Emerging Continent Becomes a Global Powerhouse. It's on my wish list yet. I haven't read it yet, but it is on the wish list. So keep your eyes out for another sale very soon, Aubrey. Uh, we mm-hmm. appreciate you so much for joining us. And uh, I, you, I do follow you on Twitter. What's, if people want to kind of follow what you're doing and your whereabouts, how can they find you on Twitter? Yes, they can find me at, at Aubrey Ruby. So it's A-U-B-R-E-Y-H-R-U-B-Y. And I'm tweeting regularly. So awesome. I look forward to, to having some new engagements. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure, and I'm happy to uh, have this conversation and to continue it another time. So, Cobus, you know, there we got a very positive view. I mean, in some ways, I, I think Aubrey reminds us that the United States uh, is still a relevant country. I mean, because we're so distracted by the headlines, so distracted by the drama. And yet, here are people in Washington, D.C., carrying the water to, to tell the Africa story to American companies, American policymakers. Frankly, I don't envy her because I think she's got a very difficult job. But I, I think in one sense, it is refreshing to hear that the United States uh, remains relevant in some cases, and there are people fighting for its relevancy. I agree. I think what Africa needs is more partners. Um, the I always find the U.S. versus China in Africa narrative a, a bit dispiriting because Africa needs both of them. Um, and, you know, Af- Africa needs to be seen and respected as a, as a mature player and a mature potential market. Um, and, you know, once that happens, then there'll be players from uh, investors and in traders and so on from all over the world, um, of which the U.S. will obviously be one. Um, I think... It'll be very interesting to see uh, a few things. In the first place, how the U.S. companies will, you know, how they'll do business in Africa, you know, once once they do. In the second place, how Africa will react to that and, you know, whether Africa will be able to, to make the changes um, in order to make itself a more viable and attractive market. That, I think, is the big issue. I don't think there's, there's any just prejudicial reasons why the U.S. doesn't want to do uh, business in Africa. I think the the real issue is frequently that Africa is a difficult place to do business in. It's a very difficult place to do business, but I have to say that China's a tough place to do business. South America's a tough place to do business. Um, to me, that's like, you know, you know, there's no crying in baseball. You know, these are hard markets to penetrate, and you got to get in there, and then there's just no other way around it. But I want to bring you back to a discussion that we had uh, a few months ago with the Kenya-based development economist Ansetsi Ware, who said that the one good point that may come out of the Trump administration is that the Trump administration will stop lecturing Africans about human rights, about democracy, about LGBT issues, about all of these different things. And, And that seems to be true, that honestly, the Trump administration lecturing dictatorships is not their thing. In fact, they seem to hug dictatorships in many ways closer than they hug democracies. Um, and I wonder if that will have a profound impact on the relationship, that if it does move to a more transactional type of relationship, if in fact 
you know, the Trump administration is helping American corporations by deregulating, that that will actually foster investment in Africa and remove the strings that have kind of pulled um, a U.S. foreign policy on this moralism and aid and we're here to rescue Africa and don't discriminate against gays and lesbians and, you know, all of those different types of narratives have complicated the relationship in so many ways. What's your take on that? I think it will only happen if it is if it is backed up by actual uh, changes that would make it easier for African businesses to do to do business with the U.S. Because the the reason Africa is so cynical, I think, about the human rights discourse that comes that comes out of the U.S. is that it is frequently the seen as a cover for a you know very very biased um, or unequal trade relationships. So for example, one of the one of the great one of the great things that Africa has to sell to to the world is is something like cotton. Um there's large cotton producers in Africa. Um and you know obviously the US and Europe um and Japan they they have very strong domestic protections for for domestic um agriculture. So Underneath this discourse of of fairness and human rights and you know support NGOs and so on, there's also the, the uh, a refusal and a kind of a structural refusal to 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 do certain kinds of trade that would like that would really really help Africa. So if I, I think if the if the transactional nature actually allows for actual transactions and not just kind of corrupt elite elite you know, kind of deal-making, then I think it would bring a, a real change. But I think that's a big ask because <laughs> because in the first place, a lot of these Listen, lobbies are super powerful There is the US. no way on God's green earth that African cotton will be coming into the U.S. market. I mean, exactly. that is just, I mean, you know, hell will freeze over before that It will that never happens. happen. It will never yeah. happen. The U.S. cotton lobby and the U.S. cotton industry is just way too powerful. Uh, and that's always been the case for dating back two centuries. I mean, America was known as King Cotton. And so that that won't happen. What I do think is interesting, though, and I think something to keep in mind just for our closing thought here, is that of all the global trade agreements that Trump has identified as being the worst in the world, whether that's TPP in Asia, whether that's the free trade agreement with South Korea uh, and with Europe, the, he's talked about scrapping the proposed free trade agreement there, and all of these different agreements, and NAFTA, including NAFTA as well, uh, AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, has not been mentioned. And in some ways, that is a huge blessing for the continent. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It'll, you know, it 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 will be interesting to see whether it will be possible for African firms to start taking greater advantage of AGOA, um, and how, if there is greater advantage taken of it, uh, how that will change thinking in in Washington in the future. Because I think, as as I understand so far. Uh, the the amount of actual AGOA fuel trade has been relatively low. It has been, but it has been a big draw for Chinese companies who are considering moving manufacturing and some of their operations to Africa to use that as a backdoor into the U.S. market. Uh, so we talked a little bit more today about the U.S., uh, but I think it's interesting for us to kind of see what's happening in the U.S. as not, again, a, as a comparison to the Chinese because they're really in so many ways so different from one another – but as a, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, Cobus? It's not, it's not an apples-to-apples apples type of comparison, but it's just, I guess, some differ, a different way of looking at things. And certainly the United States and the, and the Chinese have a very different approach for the continent. Uh, I, for one, am not a huge fan 
of the American approach that is increasingly focused on security and militarization and isolation. Uh, but I'm glad that we have people like Aubrey, Hub- Aubrey Ruby out there who are at least, again, raising the flag in Washington, D.C. I suspect she's a rather lonely soul sometimes. Her and Deborah Braudigam, the scholar from Johns Hopkins University, are among the few people in Washington, D.C. who actually know anything about the Chinese in Africa. So it's refreshing that there are people doing it. Uh, Cobus, we'll be back again next week with another edition of the show. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, all the dots and W's uh, are, are, you know, are there on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. You can also find us over on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject. And of course, uh, follow me on LinkedIn. About 350,000 people now are joining a very, very lively daily discussion on China-Africa issues. And again, LinkedIn is so exciting for me because it's one of the only places where uh, Chinese and Africans can actually interact online given the limitations of the Great Firewall. So LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, we're all there. Hey, before we go, Kobus, give everybody your your, face, uh, your Twitter handle. My Twitter handle is Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. It's still the strangest Twitter handle I've ever I've ever. Yeah, it's terrible. Okay. You can find me over <laughs> at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. That's it for this week. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.